And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what, be, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are all but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearing and reading of his word. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again. We come, Lord, to your word. We come humbly, Lord, bowing down, admitting ourselves to be sinners, unworthy of your mercy, and unworthy of your grace, unworthy that your spirit would come and bless us, opening our hearts and opening our eyes and our minds that we might behold and receive Christ in all that you have for us in him. Lord, we admit to our weakness this morning, to our sinfulness, to our need for you. We do pray, even now, that your word would have its way, convict us of our unrighteousness, comfort us with the message of Christ, move us further and further away, the love of this world, deeper and deeper into love for Jesus. Cause us, Lord, to persevere. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've come to Mark chapter 13. Again, it is Passion Week here in the Gospel of Mark and Very soon and quite quickly as we read going forward, Jesus will be tried and crucified. As we come to Mark chapter 13, we leave off from chapter 12 and Jesus is leaving off from the temple. He is leaving the temple for the very last time. And when Jesus left the temple this time, Jesus knew what no one else among his party or there in the temple knew. And that is that the temple would soon be no more. 
Spiritually, it was passing and had passed away, becoming obsolete. But physically also, it would soon be destroyed. Chapter, in chapter 13 of Mark, what we see is Jesus here reminding his disciples of a very important truth. And that is this, that the end is coming. The end is coming. And Jesus desired his disciples and even us today to live our lives in light of the end being in sight. Whenever you examine the ministry and teachings of Jesus, you just get the sense that he is going somewhere. Whenever you look at it from the very beginning of his ministry, there is an agenda. There is this almost ominous shadow overhanging his every step. No matter what he was doing, no matter where he found himself healing, performing miracles, or or teaching, it just seemed all the time that Jesus has an agenda. Jesus is going somewhere. And this is intensified as we move into the final week of his life. As we have seen in this final week as he has entered into Jerusalem and even in the temple, this idea, this foreboding has been intensified leading up to the cross. And yet as we read it, we can sense it because we know where it's going. But it seems those who were with Jesus at the time just never seem to catch on. They hear him speak about his coming death and they seemingly dismiss it. They hear him challenge the authorities and the powers that be, even to the point of his own life being in danger, and they seemingly think little of it. And yet Jesus, as he comes here to chapter 13, doesn't want them to be so narrowly focused. He wants them to think beyond today. He wants them to think beyond what they can see with their physical eyes. More importantly, he wants them to think and live with the end in mind. Someone said to me this week, That we should seek to live our lives in light of our funerals. Consider what you would want people to say. Consider what you would think that people would have to say in the comments that would be made at your funeral. And then live your life in light of those words. Live your life. With the end in mind. Why? Because the end is coming. The end is coming. And the question for us is, how will it be with your soul? Jesus 
walks out of the temple. He and his disciples have left the temple. And Jesus knows, he knows the tragedy that is the temple's future. And yet his disciples, not knowing this, not understanding this, the disciples could only see temporally the temple's present condition. And so as they walk out of the temple, one of the disciples says, look, teacher, perhaps all of them had been discussing this, I'm sure. But one of them says to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. As the temple, Herod's temple was impressive. Herod's temple was imposing. King Herod was obsessed with the grandeur. He was obsessed with his own legacy. He was obsessed with big things and people thinking big of him and what people would say about him after his death. So he built and he built and the greatest of his buildings was the temple. It was a grand structure. It was a wonderful structure. It was the largest and most impressive building in all of the Middle East and perhaps even all of the world at the time. It was huge. It was Israel's third rendition of the temple. Do you remember that the temple had initially been built under Solomon? And when Solomon had finally completed the temple, it served as the center of Israel's life. It was their worship center. It was their social center. It was their economic center. It was the center of all of their existence. It gave them a sense of purpose and identity. It told them that God was great and God was in the midst. But then they found out that temples can be destroyed and so can nations. As the Babylonians came in in 586 and not only took Israel into captivity, but then destroyed the temple. But then we read also in Nehemiah and, and Ezra that there was a call to go back into Jerusalem. And the call was also to restore the walls and to rebuild the temple. And there under the leadership of the governor, Zerubbabel, they are allowed to rebuild Solomon's temple. And the temple is once again Restored to its grandeur, restored to its place, rightful place in the midst of the nation of Israel. And once again, they perceive themselves to be the favorite people of God. Because God has allowed them to go back into the land and the restoring of the temple. And that is until the Syrians come. And the Syrians once again sack the temple and desecrate the Temple offering sacrifices under foreign gods in the temple, and the temple is once again desecrated. That is until around 20 BC, 
around 20 B.C., when they began to once again restore after the Maccabean revolt, and Israel once again is able to get into Jerusalem and restore the temple. And then under Herod, Herod begins to restore the temple, and he doesn't just restore it, beloved. He moves it, and he steps it up a notch. He builds it more grand and to the eyes more glorious than it had ever been. Huge buildings, the walls of the temple were overladen with gold so that as the sun shone upon the temple, you could see the majesty of the glare for miles and miles miles some 20 stories tall the columns were so large that it would take three grown men standing hand in hand to circle around one of them some 35 plus acres it covered to get a sense of that it could accommodate some 12 footballs This was an awesome structure. Naturally, naturally, the disciples were impressed. You and I would have been impressed too. And it wouldn't have mattered how many times you went and came from the temple. Every time you went and came, you would have said to yourself, wow. So as the disciples have come this time, they look up again and say, Jesus, can you believe it? Look at this place. They were impressed because it was imposing. But Jesus is not. They marveled, but Jesus didn't. Because even though the temple was impressive and even though the temple was imposing, it was not indestructible. Like the ocean liner Titanic in 1912, right? Seemingly indestructible. Nothing like it had ever been built in the history of mankind. It was a revolution of industry and engineering. It was impressive. It was imposing. And unfortunately, the world found out that the Titanic could and would sink. And so too the world found out that Herod's temple could and would be destroyed. The corrosion and the corruption of the temple, however, happened on the inside long before the downfall on the outside. And as the disciples are marveling at the temple and the wonder that is the outside of the temple, Jesus, in essence, says to them, boys, this temple is but a building of straw. But there is coming a wind. A great wind that is going to blow this house down. 
long before the temple walls fell, the temple worship had already fallen. And as Jesus left the temple, so too did the blessings of God. And in essence, when he left, it was as if he took a marker and wrote atop of that grand structure, Ichabod. Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. It is gone. It is gone. It is gone. This does not remind us Jesus sees what others can't see, how the life of a thing is held together on the outside. But we know that ultimately sin corrodes a matter on the heart before it ever manifests itself outwardly. So it was with the temple. The corrosion on the inside such that the inevitable consequence of the destruction on the outside was soon to come. Jesus reminds them that destruction is sure. But he wants them, his disciples, to see beyond the glitter. He wants them to see beyond the grandeur because in less than 40 years, this temple would be no more. In less than a generation, he says to them, do you see these buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Look at them. Look at these stones. Look at these buildings. Look at the grandeur of the structure. There is nothing as big and as grand as this. And yet Jesus says, look carefully, boys, because soon there will not be a stone upon a stone. The whole thing will be toppled. And this is a bold prediction. And you, you can imagine. This is the biggest thing around. This is the, this is the, this is the greatest thing around. Have we ever seen anything as this grand? And Jesus says, boys, it's going to disappear. It will be no more. And this is a bold prediction. And yet it is, it is not bolder than Jesus predicting that he would die and in three days be raised again. It's not no bolder than that. I mean, I can imagine a building crumbling down. I can imagine fortresses being brought to the ground. But you're telling me somebody says that they're going to die, be in the grave three days, and they're going to be raised again. Disciples don't seem to raise any questions about that. But the minute Jesus says, the temple is going to be destroyed, they're incredulous. They're talking among themselves, trying to figure out what is he, what is he talking about? And even though he had told them three times already that he was going to die and be raised again. Disciples apparently weren't paying attention to those predictions. 
Because they just like us. We hear what we want to hear. Because they heard him when he said, just once. Boy, that temple is coming down. It's coming down. Not only is it coming down, but he says that the destruction would be total. The destruction of the temple would be a total destruction. It would be obsolete spiritually. It would be obsolete socially. For the temple would be destroyed just as the old order would be destroyed. Jesus here is laying the foundation for which disciples would understand fuller later as the spirit comes upon them and opens their eyes to the full revelation of the redemptive history of God. They would come to understand that as Jesus was saying there would be no temple because there was going to be a new temple. And it was Jesus. There would be no more sacrifices because there was going to be a once and for all sacrifice. And that was Jesus. There would be no more worship in the temple. Because now there would be a new worship. And it would be in Jesus. The disciples, however, were curious, if not confused. So as they go on and they sit down on the Mount of Olives, they they say to Jesus, Jesus, tell us when will these things be? When will this temple be brought down like this? When will, because they understand that if that temple is destroyed, this is going to be a horrific event. And you can imagine them beginning to think about all the implications of the temple being destroyed. In order for the temple to be destroyed, someone would have had to come in here and destroy all those who were defending the temple. If the temple was going to be destroyed, the government that is in place now would have to be deposed. What is happening? When are all these things going to happen, Jesus? Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign, the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Well, Jesus tells Peter, James, John, and Andrew two sets of brothers who are his disciples. These things are going to be, but what I want you to do is to look out. I want you to look out for three things. I want you to look out for false prophets. I want you to be looking and discerning the fierce persecution. And I want you to be aware of the need for final perseverance. Don't be taken back by what I tell you is going to happen. 
reminds them that there will be false prophets. With the destruction of the temple, there will come false prophets. And you got to imagine again, imagine what would happen if the temple would be destroyed and how all of life would be turned upside down and inside out and everybody would be running around searching for answers, wanting to know why is this event happening? What is happening now? Is this the end? And in there, in that void will be raised up all types of false prophets and messiahs claiming not only to know Jesus, but claim themselves to be Jesus. He says it's going to raise up false prophets claiming they are Messiah and saying, I am he. I am the one who will lead you out of the darkness of this destruction. And they will speak of coming doom reminding you to look around and see all these wars and these rumors of wars to look around you and see all these earthquakes and, and tornadoes in strange and diverse places look at all of these strange happenings and turn to me In fact, they will pick up the newspaper and begin to interpret current events. Every time something happens in the Middle East, every time a new leader is raised up, every time something happens in Russia, every time there is a war, every time there is a bomb, somebody has a prophecy, somebody has a prediction just when the end and how the end is going to come. We see it in our day, but Jesus says this would happen even in the days of the disciples. But he says to them, "Ah, but you understand, you look at all the current events that are happening in the world and that have happened throughout history and know this, beloved, that these are are but the beginnings of birth pains. Disciples, when you see all this happening, when you hear all this happening, now understand from their perspective, they don't have the internet. They don't have CNN. They don't have any worldwide news. And so if they received a rumor of war, that war was probably going on for a year or two. If they heard about an earthquake in some far off place, the people from that earthquake was probably already rebuilding. So Jesus here is reminding them, fellas, don't get taken out. Don't get caught up when you hear these things. It's reminding us too. As Christians, we don't get taken in. Why? Because no matter what is happening in our world, the call for the Christian is to live a life of readiness. We live lives of readiness. We are ready at any moment for the Lord to return. We are ready at any moment for the end to come. The songwriter says, we live out of our suitcases. We live 
out of our suitcases. This is what the Lord is telling his disciples, boys, live out of your suitcases. See to it that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. Don't buy into the sensationalism. The false prophets abounded after Jesus, and especially at the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And from then on, history has been replete with false prophets predicting the end, predicting the doom. It's happened again and again and again. In 1844, William Miller, who was a kind of a forerunner, a forefather of the seven-day Adventists and the Adventism movement, predicted that the Lord would return on October 22nd, 1844. Charles Taze Russell, the, the, the founder and great prophet of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the founder of the Watchtower organization predicted that Jesus would return in 1914. Again, when that didn't fully materialize, again in 1925. And when that didn't fully materialize, again and again and again and again. Pat Robertson and Hal Lindsey both predicted in the 80s that mass destruction would come and usher in what they perceived and wrongly understood to be a great tribulation. And even in recent days, how can we not forget the disaster of last year that was Harold Camping? Thousands of people sold property and left home and kindred and traveled the world prophesying and proclaiming that the Lord would return on May 21st of 2001 and 2011. And when that didn't materialize, recalculating his dates and redoing the math, said he meant to me, he meant October 21st. 2011. But this has always been the case. It was the case for the disciples at the destruction of Jerusalem. It has been the case whenever there has been mass destruction in the world of of wars and rumors of wars, of of catastrophe, natural and man-made. Whenever that has been the case, men and women have rose up and proclaimed themselves to be prophets, that they would know what is the will of God in bringing the world to its final end. Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to us, pay them no mind. All you need to is be ready. Live out your suitcase. Be ready when it does come. Not only would there be false prophets, but Jesus tells his disciples too that there's going to be fierce persecution. He tells the disciples, therefore, to be clear in your mind. 
Get this right. You must be, must be discerning and you must not get caught up in the foolishness of these fanciful movements. But be sober-minded. Be sober-minded because this is the only way you're going to glorify God in the midst of the coming persecution is to be sober-minded. Because the persecution is coming. And when it comes, it will be fierce. There will be beatings. Beatings from the governmental authorities. Beatings from the religious authority. Beatings from the Romans. Beatings from the Jews. Beatings from all quarters. Not only will there be beatings, but there will be betrayals. Brother will rise up against brother and parents against children and children against parents, turning each other in, turning each other over, abandoning one another. Not only will there be beatings and betrayals, but there will be hatred. For the venom and the vitriol will be intense. There will be beatings. There will be betrayals. There will be hatred. And yet he reminds them that all this will come upon you, but it's not in vain. It's not in vain. For you notice that twice he gives them the comfort of these words in verse 9 and again in verse 13. It's not in vain because it is for my sake. For my name's sake. In other words, these beatings, these betrayals, this hatred will be opportunities to proclaim the name of Christ in ways and in days, in places and before faces that you would have never had the opportunity to proclaim me. It is Paul under arrest. In Philippi, where he uses his prison for his pulpit. Paul is under arrest, under the threat of death, under guard 24-7, waiting the judgment of the authorities on whether or not he will be allowed to live. Living under that threat and living in those conditions, he writes to the Philippians and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and, the, and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ." My imprisonment is for his sake. My imprisonment is for his name's sake. Because suffering and pain and betrayal and even hatred are not omnipotent in the life of the Christian. God is. 
And Christ is telling his disciples, you must not be overtaken by these things, but realize that this oppression is but opportunity. This hardship is but an opportunity for you to proclaim who I am. For suffering for Christ, beloved, is never wasted. Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. In that name, glorify God in the name of suffering as a Christian. Because whatever others or the enemy means for evil, God means for good and for his glory. And therefore, beloved, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whatever the circumstances, whatever the problem, whatever the pain, God would have us to look to him and turn that pain into a pulpit. Look for him to add opportunities to advance the gospel in the midst of our predicament. Why? Because whatever we lose, God can restore. Whatever we lose, God is able and willing to restore. If you lose family, he will give you more. If you lose friends, he will multiply friends to you. If you lose possessions and home, he will open new doors and opportunities for you. If you lose job and money, And security. For his sake. He is able. To give you more. He is able. To give you better. And this is why he says. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. In the midst of those predicaments, in the midst of those trials, when you are standing before those authorities and you are standing in the midst of those issues and problems, don't be anxious. Don't worry because your comfort will be the Holy Spirit who will come and grant unto you the words to say in the very hour you need to say them. But that's not a promise just simply to the disciples. As the disciples lived their lives in the book of Acts, you see it over and over again that the Holy Spirit empowered them to give testimony to Christ in the midst of all their situations whenever that testimony was necessary. But that is also a promise to us. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Because when you need him, Holy Spirit is there. He's there to not only comfort you, but to give you the victory and the words to proclaim the glories of Christ. A woman once told me that the doctor had told her that she had cancer. 
And so she told me that she was going to his office and she was going to let him know that she was not receiving that report. I told her, you know, the question really is not whether or not you're going to receive that cancer or that report from the doctor. Here is the better question. The question is when God decides or when it pleases God to give you the cancer, can you turn that problem into a pulpit for the glory of Christ? And when you walk in that doctor's office and you hear the news that indeed those cells that are growing in your body are cancerous cells. When you walk out of that office and you look around that office and you see men and women, boys and girls suffering from the throes of chemotherapy, hair falling out, bodies weakened. Eyes looking as if there is no hope. Can you there turn your problem into a pulpit? Can you look at those in that office and say to them, and I have a Christ all in my life and this is what makes me happy. For Christ is all. Not this cancer. Not this body. That is going to end one way or another. But Christ is all. All in all. This world to me. That's the testimony. It doesn't take Holy Spirit to walk in that office and tell the doctor, I don't believe that. I ain't receiving that report. It takes Holy Spirit to walk out of that office having heard that report and still give testimony to the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Christ in your life. That's what Holy Spirit does. That is the promise that God, that Christ gives to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And he says, knowing all that, brothers, now remember that ultimately the truth is known because of final perseverance. Yeah, there's going to be false prophets and there's going to be fierce persecution This is what you need to understand is that in the end, salvation and deliverance is for those who endure, who hold on. Jesus didn't tell his disciples exactly when these things would be, but the admonition to them was to be ready. Be ready for when the end comes, will you be ready? Will you be found faithful? Because perseverance is what the Lord desires. Notice what he says. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Jesus reminds his disciples here that the race is not to the swift, that the race is not to the strong, but it's to the one who endures. We understand this, and the disciples would understand this, and and many of us understand this in our own lives, that nothing tries or tests our faith and faithfulness like persecution and trial. You really know. You really know who's with you when the going gets tough. We know that. How much more does God know it? Who's really with God is discerned and revealed when the going gets tough. A lot of people, a lot of people sign up for Christianity on a sunny day. A lot of people go down in the waters when it's warm. But when those water gets hot, when the rocks get thrown, when the storms start raging, those same people are nowhere to be found. But the true test of Christianity, beloved, is not those who start the race. The true test of Christianity is those who finish, who finish the race. Notice what Peter says in First Peter chapter six and, and verses in First Peter chapter one and verses six and seven. You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why you have been tried. This is why you have been tested because God is interested in proving the genuineness of your faith. And that genuineness will be manifested at the revelation of Jesus Christ to the praise and the glory and the honor of the one who has saved you. You know, I often hear people asking the question, well, when did you get saved? Or people like to write down in their Bibles their their spiritual birthday. But you know, the true test of Christianity is not whether or not you were baptized as a kid. The true test of Christianity is not whether or not you walked the aisle at a Billy Graham crusade. The true test of Christianity is, are you saved today? Are you walking in faith today? I'm not interested in what happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. My concern is that you are saved today. Because salvation is a today experience. Right now. Right now, are you trusting in Christ? Right now. Are you holding on? 
in the midst of whatever else is going on. Don't you live any old way you want to live. Don't you do any old thing you want to do. Say any old thing you want to say and then take comfort that as a child you signed some card and gave your, your hand to the preacher and went down in some waters of baptism. question is are you saved today are you trusting Christ now the majority of the New Testament writers address this important issue as well make understanding that salvation is an ever-present reality in our lives and Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7 and 8, thinking on this idea of endurance and perseverance as he gets to the end of his life, he tells Timothy, Timothy, I have fought the good faith fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. I fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my race. Therefore, the consequence of that is that there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 and verse 14 puts it this way. For we have come to share in Christ if, we have come to share in Christ if, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. If we indeed hold on to our original confidence firm to the end. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these things, you will never fall. Every day and every way, the call of the Christian is to be making their calling and election sure. Are you in Christ? Then every day it is building upon that knowledge and adding to your faith, adding to your faith, the virtues of the faith, whereby you are bearing fruit as evidence that the Spirit has made a change in your Because these are those who demonstrate that they belong to God. Or the true test of faith is perseverance. It's not so much when you got saved. It's are you saved? Are you holding on to Christ today? Jesus wants his disciples not to be deceived because he says, but, but it's those who endure to the end who are going to be saved. Why? Because you can fake it. You can fake it, beloved. You can, you can fake me out and you can do the okie doke on the pastor. But you can't fake it with God. 
The Bible says that God knows those who are his own and they are those who depart from iniquity. He knows them. He knows them. You won't fool God. For those who endure to the end are those who are saved. Why? Why? Because in the end, we will see that our perseverance gives way to his preservation. That our perseverance gives way to his preservation. Alistair Begg put it this way. It is on account of his persevering love towards us that we are enabled to persevere in our love toward him. Don't miss that, beloved. There is no salvation without perseverance. And yet the testimony of those who persevere is that Christ has preserved them all the way. is why Jude can say now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy now unto him who keeps you from stumbling and therefore in your everyday walk you persevere knowing in the end it will be him who gets the glory for having preserved you. Jesus is reminding his disciples and reminding us this morning, endure to the end, endure to the end. How will it be with you in the end? Jesus is warning his disciples and he's telling us too that the end is coming. His end is coming. His end, his own end is coming in the next couple of days. But however, if they would persevere and not lose heart, then they would see the triumph of their faith. The question for us this morning is, how will it be with our souls? I mean, if the, if the Lord came today, if your own earthly temple was destroyed today, could you say with a certainty that you have another temple? You have another building that is not made by hands, but that is reserved for you in the heavens. Can you say that? Are you confident Are you assured that there is laid up for you a crown of life? My admonition to you this morning is to look away from buildings. Look away from temples. Look away from rituals. Look away from self. In essence, what Jesus is saying to the disciples and he's saying to us, You look to Christ. Let that be your hope. Not in buildings, not in temples, not in anything that is made by human hands, but your hope must be in Christ. 
You ought to be able to sing with the songwriter. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Because on Christ, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. Not on the rocks of those temples, not on the rock of anything that is made with human hands or is in my own heart or imaginations, but upon Christ. Because everything else, it's like that temple in Jerusalem. Is built on sinking sand. Oh, beloved, I pray that everyone in here hears the call, but trust Christ. Today, today, and you trust him, and he promises, and he's going to get you home. He's going to get you there. You just trust him. Let us pray. Dear God, indeed we are living in unsure days. Days that all around us remind us that most of our living Lord is Beyond our control, the events of this world confuse us and confound us every day. And yet, like your early disciples, Lord, we desire to place our hope in you, to persevere in the midst, Lord, of uncertainty, in the midst of confusion. Cause us now, Lord, by grace to see Christ. May he be our hope. May he be all our stay. May there not be anyone here, Lord, who is not believing in Jesus, trusting in him alone. Today, today, if we would hear your spirit, Let us not harden our hearts, but trust today. In Jesus' name, amen.